Jim Bennett. Welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Excellent. So here we are. This is sit-down number four. It is the 13th of February. We are at the point where we finished uh, the last episode. We discussed, uh, I think, the book of Abraham inside and out. And now here we are on polygamy. We talked a little bit last time about section 132 and about the critic raising the concern of Joseph Smith not following the rules of 132. And for you, the word virgin seems to indicate more of a moral cleanliness, a, a sense of being clean before the Lord, uh, and then also destroyed doesn't necessarily mean that you know, an angel is going to come down and chop a head off, but that there's some loss in the eternities based on whether one keeps uh, the commandments or not. And uh, But you acknowledge that Joseph Smith... Uh, likely and and maybe almost certainly practice polygamy in a way that would raise concerns, Um, maybe a sense of even, even as we talked last week about maybe a sense of manipulation, that maybe some of that has some validity. And so I wanted to go through some of the stories today uh, and see maybe what your thoughts were. And I want to start with the earliest one, which is uh, Fanny Alger. And uh, we don't know the exact date on this. We, Our best scholarship says that Fanny is somewhere between the age of 16 and 18, that she was working in the Smith home as a maid. We have William McClellan telling us that he interviewed Emma Smith, and Emma had some distress over Joseph's relationship with Fanny, and said that she looked in the barn and saw the whole transaction. I know there's debate about what transaction means, um, and and I'm happy to let you respond to that, but I at least want to acknowledge that whatever Emma saw, it caught her off guard, and it at least appears, based on the evidence, that she didn't know that whatever was going on, whether it was sex in the barn that Joseph was having with Fanny, or whether... uh, there was a sealing ceremony being performed. Either way, Emma was not um, not prepared for that having gone on. Like she was caught off guard and surprised by it, and it wasn't a good thing. You also have Oliver Cowdery, uh, who writes his brother Warren Cowdery, and writes to him that Joseph's Dirty, relationship, nasty, filthy scrape. Yeah, um, and so you have that commentary from Oliver. Uh, which also, again, points to uh, Oliver not seeing it on the up and up and feeling on some level that it was an inappropriate relationship. I, I think the the reasonable way of, of looking at those two things is to see it as some type of uh, physical intimacy. and um, But I also... I also validate that I don't have any proof that that at the end of the day, if one wants to argue that transaction is a ceiling and scrape is just a relationship and doesn't necessarily have to have any physical nature, uh, I'm willing I'm willing to grant that there's room enough to hold that perspective, though I do think it's the less reasonable one. Um, and I want to give you, I guess, a moment to respond to this particular instance. And I want to at least say lastly... 
if it occurred when she was 16 or 17 years old, we also have it happening before ceiling keys are restored. And I think that does affect the conversation as well. And so with that, I'll turn the time over to you. Well, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's any reason to think that there wasn't physical intimacy in this, uh, that there was a sexual relationship between Fanny and Joseph. Uh, it's clear that, that in the marriages that Joseph performed, if they were considered marriages, uh, as opposed to simply ceilings, uh, there was a differentiation between ceilings and marriages that uh, would have precluded sexual relationships in ceilings that were considered to be eternity only and a marriage that would be considered to be time and eternity and a marriage in this life. Uh, and as you point out, it's likely that this was a marriage that may not have been a ceiling. Uh, uh, the ceiling keys hadn't been restored, but we have, we have suggestion that Joseph had uh, received revelation as early as 1831, telling him that plural marriage would have to be restored. Uh, so, so this may have been an instance that it was a marriage and not a sealing, that Joseph was not sealed to Fanny Alger. But even hostile sources point to this as a marriage. And you mentioned Oliver Cowdery, and it's interesting because Oliver Cowdery was called before the council to answer the charge that he had charged Joseph Smith was a, with adultery. And Joseph never tried to deny any kind of relationship with Fanny Alger. He just tried to deny that it was adultery. And, and Oliver conceded in the council that, uh, that Joseph had not committed adultery. Uh, and Oliver really, I think, is a fascinating witness with regard to this because he is... Uh, Whatever it is that he saw, whatever it is that he felt, it wasn't enough to keep him out of the church later in life when he came back and was willing to be able to return to the church even in, with, without any kind of position, without you know being an apostle or anything else. He was willing to come back and recognize that, uh, that whatever it was that happened between Joseph and Fanny uh, it wasn't enough to convince him to deny his testimony of the Book of Mormon. It wasn't enough to convince him that the church, even after Joseph was gone, was not something that that he should return to. So, so uh, Fanny Alder, I think, is probably the most problematic for me because I, I get this sense of Joseph feeling like, okay, I have to perform this this. Uh, I have to restore plural marriage. I have to do whatever it was the ancients were doing, and I have no idea how to do it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just approach the girl that's working in my house. I mean, it just strikes me as there's a whole bunch of messy judgment here that Joseph is trying to, to restore a practice, doesn't know how to do it, doesn't know what to do with it, and I think messes it up. That's how I see Fanny Alger. I'm assuming that you would acknowledge that, um, well, one is that there's the, the young women of the young brides that 
uh, Joseph is being sealed to. And, and, and I, I may use the wrong vocabulary. I'm not doing it intentionally. So if I say bride or marriage, I mean, I'm willing to grant that you might argue sealing in some of these cases. I'm okay with that. Um, these young women, that there is some type of relationship that Joseph feels called from God to enter, or at least Joseph is claiming to others that he's called of God to enter, that these young women, first of all, that they they live or they work in the Smith home, which gives him access um, to these young women in private moments. And I don't mean that in like a physical way, like, hey, he can have sex with them and nobody knows, which I also think is true, but I'm simply saying to approach them with private conversations by the, by the fact that these, these young girls or young women work in his home or live in his home, he has access to them in private moments, just he and them. Uh, I assume you'd grant that that, that, well, that's the case. But then on top of that, there's this layer of, I get a little uh, icky because it feels like when we're talking about young people and they're working in another person's home, there's a lot of unhealthy space for manipulation. There's a lot of unhealthy space for pressure um, that I don't think exist in other scenarios as well. And I'm not I'm not asking you to say like, yeah, Joseph definitely manipulated every one of these. No, but to at least acknowledge like that's a pretty unhealthy space to be in um, to have access to young girls in the privacy of your own home who work or live in your home who depend on you for either financial support or for a roof and food on the table and then to approach them with plural marriage at least is in the realm of like, ugh, that makes me nervous. Oh, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff in the realm of it makes me nervous with regard to plural marriage. And certainly, I, I, and I think I said this the last time, that if, if that's how you want to think of Joseph, uh, I think there is plentiful room for you to be able to think of Joseph. Uh, I also think, however, that if you want to think well of Joseph, there is room to do that too, because I think the evidence suggests that this was not the kind of license for sexual adventurism that the critics tend to portray it as. Uh, the, the fact that Joseph had no children with any of these women suggests that sexual relationships were not the centerpiece of this, that this was primarily a religious principle. And, so, and also that the sealings took place with witnesses. So the idea that Joseph is approaching women in his household and just sort of having a tryst off in a, in a broom closet or something else or some other kind of unseemly thing, I don't think the evidence suggests that at all. Joseph talks to these women and gets them involved in a ceremony that other people witness. And then, you know, when he's even in the last months of his life, he's fathering children with Emma and he's not fathering children with any of his of his plural wives, suggests there's something else going on here. But the problem with plural marriage is that we don't have enough documentation about anything to be able to say anything definitive. So you're left to say, okay, I want to think ill of Joseph, and I'm going to suggest that all he was doing was manipulating young girls to get them into bed. Or I want to think well of Joseph, and I want to think this was a high-minded religious principle and there wasn't sex involved in any of it. And I, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle, closer to the thinking well of Joseph than the thinking ill of Joseph. Because I think that Joseph very clearly 
didn't go about this, didn't know what, what he was doing. Uh, but the thing that, the, the, the evidence that makes me think better of Joseph than I think most critics would is the evidence, the firsthand evidence of the women who record their experiences and record the spiritual experiences they had that confirmed that what they were doing was of God. And it's something that's very difficult for me to understand because plural marriage, I, I, you know, I, I've been married now for almost 25 years and the idea of being married to more than one woman uh, and all of the difficulties that would surround multiple families and everything else, you know, I, I guess sex is a wonderful thing, but it, it's not enough to persuade me that I want to have multiple families. Uh, it, it just strikes me as an extraordinarily difficult thing to do for everybody involved, including the man, certainly more so for the woman. But it, it, uh, plural marriage is, a, is an alien arrangement to me, and I think it was an alien arrangement to Joseph at the time. And he felt like this was a religious principle that he had to practice, and he didn't know what he was doing. And he messed it up. But I don't think it was... It was the kind of predatory thing that that it's uh, portrayed as usually in uh, by critics and by people who are looking to think ill of Joseph. The the other thing with Fanny would be the idea of Emma being in the dark, uh, right? And and it, it again, you're right. We don't have without being a firsthand witness sitting in these conversations in the Smith home or elsewhere. We were left to only draw on the data, um, but it, well, it, but with Fanny, the data is remarkably sketchy. I mean, all yeah. we have is this is the peek through the barn from William McClellan, and that's years and years after the fact. So we don't know what it is he's peeking at. We don't know if maybe Joseph has married her, but Joseph has promised Emma that there's going to be no physical relationship, and then Emma sees a physical relationship. Uh, that strikes me as maybe being what I, I mean. I don't have any idea. None of us have any idea. We're, we're all assuming uh, the worst, I think, here, and and we just don't know. But at least to acknowledge that it appears that Emma was surprised by whatever it was she saw, and that on some level, I think that brings into question, especially as we move forward. Whether and again, I think this word fidelity means something. Um, I live in here. I live in Southern Utah. Of course, you have experience down here as well. And you and I both talked. Um, I've talked in past podcast episodes, doing other stuff, and you've talked in this interview about seeing the fundamentalists that are down here and and experiencing kind of what a little bit of what their right. world looks like. And I'll simply say that uh, grown adults in religious systems um, can, can sometimes believe deeply that God is calling them to live in something other than monogamy and that um, grown adults outside religious systems can, you know, as grown adults choose how they're going to live their lives. And sometimes it ends up being non-monogamous, but, but that on some level that when, when one woman doesn't know about another woman or women, 
that it raises a concern of fidelity. So it's not necessarily the act of being with more than one woman, because again, others choose that. And even within our own church, there are breakoffs that are doing that. I'm not suggesting that polygamy itself is an issue of infidelity, but that Emma's lack of knowing uh, about these relationships Again, we can justify, like Joseph had to, or he didn't know any better, or yeah, he made a mistake, but at least to acknowledge on the record that when we define fidelity as having the trust of your other and not going beyond the boundaries that you as a husband and wife set, that Joseph in this particular instance, the data points to perhaps a lack of fidelity. Well, emphasis on the perhaps. I mean, Emma is a really fascinating character because even with all of this, Emma was devoted to Joseph throughout the rest of her life. I mean, when she when she spoke of Joseph after his passing, uh, she was still true to the testimony of the Book of Mormon. She was she still believed in Joseph. Uh, there was affection for Joseph all throughout his life and all throughout all of the plural marriage. So whatever the dynamic was, I mean, anybody who's in a marriage recognizes that there are all kinds of dynamics that nobody outside of the marriage understands and can appreciate. And the way Emma treated plural marriage and the idea that she essentially denied that Joseph had ever been a polygamist uh, makes her, to some degree, an unreliable narrator when it comes to her own history. So the, the thing... I just I, I, I bristle a little bit when everybody just assumes, well, clearly Joseph was just carrying on behind Emma's back because we have no idea what was happening one-on-one -on -one between Joseph and Emma during this period. We don't have any idea what the conversations were. We don't have any idea what Joseph told her, what Joseph didn't tell her. The idea, I think it's entirely possible and even probable that Joseph was telling her about this and she would say, okay, all right, I accepted it's from God, and then the next day would say, it's absolutely not, and Joseph here is just left holding the bag thinking, okay, well, what do I do? I've talked to her about it, I've approached her about it, and that's when you get the kind of nonsense where he does the sham marriage again, uh, where he, he, he remarries somebody for Emma's sake in order to be able, but, but doesn't essentially tell her that he'd already married them. I mean, you get that kind of thing when 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 you have him doing what, whatever he can to try to placate Emma and try to include her in this. Uh, it, it's very clear that he didn't begin it and say, okay, I'm just going to start having affairs and I'm not going to tell my wife. It, it, it seems very clear that he tried to involve Emma in this and Emma was reticent and I think understandably so. And that creates a dynamic that we are not able to document, that we are not able to understand. And I, I fully, I fully uh, concede that plural marriage is extraordinarily messy and extraordinarily difficult, and it's not something that I think any member of the church is eager to point to with pride and say, this is a magnificent part of our history. This is a wonderful thing that happened. And I think that's the reason the church has essentially tried to sweep it under the rug, which is a very difficult thing to do when you're practicing plural marriage for, what, 50 to 75 years or however long it went on. 
and it was the defining doctrine of the church for its early, you know, f particularly for the time that uh, we were crossing the plains and, and settling Utah, uh, you, you can't deny that it was a central part of the church's theology, and yet we tried to deny it was a central part of the church's theology because it's so messy, and it's so strange, and it's so weird. So I'm, I'm happy to concede that, but I, I think when if you just jump to the idea that, jo that Joseph was identical to John C. Bennett, I don't think the data points you in that direction. Yeah, you point to this experience of the Partridge sisters. I want to get to them in a moment and talk about that. I my my struggle is that I think there's enough data. And in fact, last episode you and I talked about uh, Joseph going to Hiram or Hiram going to Joseph and saying like, "Just tell me the revelation. I'll write it down. I'll take it to him, Emma." And Joseph saying, "You don't know Emma as well as I do." I think there's enough arrows pointing to Emma struggled severely with plural marriage. And I agree with you. There may have been moments where she is conceding and saying like, let's do this. I'll, I'll be part of this. And then I think there are other moments. Well, the Parker yeah. sisters point to that. They point, they point yeah. to the, at least there was that moment where she was willing to say, right. Yeah. Um, anyway. and, and then other moments where she's probably, feeling a lot of deep hurt and struggling deeply over it. And again, the, the Hiram going to Joseph for the 1832 revelation seems to point at that. And so I think both things are going on. I agree with you. Um, let's, let's spend a moment on the Lucy Walker story. You had mentioned that in the last episode. Lucy Walker is, at the time she's 15, her mom dies. Uh, her dad is very grief-stricken. There's, I think, somewhere around the number of like eight kids in the Walker family. So now dad's on his own to take care of all of these children. Uh, Lucy is the fourth from the oldest down. Uh, Joseph Smith comes along and says, you know, uh, Brother Walker, this grief, this, this struggle that you're having over your wife's death is going to kill you if we don't do something about it. And Joseph Smith sends, uh, extends an invitation to Brother Walker to go on a mission, that this is going to be the best thing for him, that Joseph Smith is going to take in the oldest four kids, which leaves Lucy as the youngest of that group. Uh, I believe it's two sisters and two brothers, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, says that he'll send the other children into other really good, healthy, Latter-day Saint homes, essentially good parents. He'll send them to good families. And those families will take care of them. And if, and if they don't take care of those children well, uh, then uh, he would take, Joseph says, I'll take them into my home. And says, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you on a mission. I think this is the best thing for you. Sends them on a mission. Uh, very, very quickly, Lucy, this is right around her birthday. She turns 16. And Lucy tells us, I believe this is in Lucy's own journal, Lucy tells us that Joseph and Emma referred to us as his daughters. Um, when they go out into public, when Joseph and Emma are introducing others to these kids, they're referring to them as their own children. Joseph, very soon uh, upon Lucy moving into the home and him taking care of her, proposes that she become a plural wife of his. And here's my struggle, and I feel like I'm placed into a Sophie's choice. Uh, 
And it's, it's this conundrum. It's that either A, uh, I, I have to believe in a God who comes into the situation and says, look, here's this father-daughter type of relationship. Here is a man who is caring for another person as, as her father, and, she, and he refers to her as his daughter. And so Heavenly Father is commanding Joseph to take a father-daughter relationship and to change it into a husband-wife relationship. And, and that's a big struggle for me. I have a lot of, I can't, I can't reconcile a God who works at that level. And then I'm, or I'm left with a prophet who, who claims, at least in Lucy's words, that God is commanding him to take her as a plural wife. And, and that's not the case. So either Joseph, again, I feel like I'm pushed into a black and white choice. And I'm not a black and white thinker. I like complexity. I like nuance. But it feels like I'm being pushed into the choice of accepting that Joseph either lied about how direct the revelation was in terms of it being Lucy and Joseph himself then wanting to change a father-daughter relationship into a husband-wife relationship, or a heavenly father who gets into a father-daughter relationship and wants it to be a husband-wife relationship. And both of those feel inappropriate and unable for me to be okay with, to sit with comfortably. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that one. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, because... Because this was an issue, actually, back in 2012, there was a columnist named Mike Adams who wrote this big anti-Mormon screed beating up on Mitt Romney. He's a political columnist, and he essentially said Mitt Romney's in a cult and what a terrible person he is. And a bunch of Latter-day Saints wrote to him and said, no, this isn't right, and you need to apologize. And so he wrote this really snarky apology column where he said, and so I've just pulled this up on my blog. And he said, I'm sorry that after her mother died, Joseph Smith approached teenager Lucy Walker with a command that she marry Smith with the threat of eternal damnation as the punishment if she refused. I am sorry that the year before Joseph died, he said the following to Lucy, I will give you until tomorrow to decide, and he puts in parentheses, whether to marry me. If you reject this message, the gate will be closed forever against you. And when I read that back in 2012, that was essentially my first exposure to Lucy Walker. And I thought, okay, so I, I wrote a reply to, to Mike Adams where I went through this and I went and researched what was going on with Lucy Walker. And, and there's a lot going on here that doesn't get mentioned. Uh, for instance, the... Mike Adams would have you believe that he he gave her 24 hours after he proposed. And essentially what he did is he introduced the doctrine of plural marriage to her four months before this confrontation, and she refused. She said, absolutely not. I, this is terrible. And Joseph didn't, didn't say anything about it for four months. And then he came to her four months later and says this thing about the gate uh, and in the context of what he's talking about, he's essentially saying, uh, you have 24 hours after that, we're not going to get married. It's not going to happen. There isn't a threat that she's going to go to hell. 
there's the saying that if you, it, he's essentially saying, Fisher cut bait. If you don't want to marry me, let me know within 24 hours. And she refuses him again. And so I, I, I went in there and, and, and this is from Lucy Walker. She says he walked after he, after she refuses him. She says he walked across the room, returned and stood before me with the most beautiful expression of countenance. He said, God almighty bless you. You shall have a manifestation of the will of God concerning you, a testimony that you can never deny. I will tell you what it shall be. It shall be that peace and joy that you never knew. And she says, my room became filled with a heavenly influence. To me, it was in comparison like the brilliant sun bursting through the darkest cloud. My soul was filled with a calm, sweet peace that I never knew. Supreme happiness took possession of my whole being and I received a powerful and irresistible testimony of the truth of the marriage covenant called celestial or plural marriage, which has been like an anchor to the soul through all the trials of life. So if you look at Lucy Walker as the source of her experience, she is painting a very different picture from the experience of Joseph cornering women in his own home and trying to, you know, acting like a sexual predator. Uh, we don't, I, I don't see it. I don't know if this was a sexual relationship or not. Uh, but I do know that if we look back at the early days of plural marriage, that sealing and the idea of being sealed to the prophet was, was very important to people. And people long after Joseph Smith's death were stood as proxy for Joseph Smith and were sealed Men stood as proxy for Joseph Smith, and women were sealed to Joseph Smith. That's the case in my own family. My great-great-grandfather, Jedediah M. Grant, uh, stood proxy for Joseph Smith. And, and his wife was sealed to Joseph Smith, even though they lived and were married. And that's bizarre to us. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it, what, it, what it illustrates, I think, is that we're, we're applying a presentist understanding to the way sealings were taking place. And I think there's a whole lot more evidence to the idea that Joseph was sealing these women to him and that it wasn't necessarily transforming the relationship from a father-daughter relationship to a husband-wife relationship so much as, okay, I'm going to create this eternal family and I'm going to seal you to me. And now we would say, okay, we'll, we'll seal you as a child to a parent. And that process of sealing a child to a parent didn't begin until after Joseph Smith was dead. And so this was the only sealing mechanism that Joseph was familiar with or that Joseph. And so I don't know. I don't necessarily believe that he was saying to her, okay, now we're going, you know, I'm going to sneak into your bedroom after I'm done with Emma. Uh, what he's saying is essentially, um, what he's telling her father, what he's telling their family is, we're going to seal you all together as a family. I'm going to seal you all to me. And the way we do that is through plural marriage. But I, I just think the dynamic there is very different from the, from what you're saying. So I mean, if, if you're looking for room to be able to think about this with more complexity, I, I think there's ample room to do that. I don't think this is a black and white Joseph is is commanding her to suddenly become the kind of wife that Emma is to him. I, I don't think that was the relationship here. 
Let me um, – and so I understand what you're saying. I understand you're making the argument that, look, this may not have been a sexual relationship at all, although I do think that Brian Hales uh, acknowledges it. And he's the one who's really fighting for some of these relationships that where the critics think there's sex, there's not. I well, think, does Brian Hale does Brian Hale say that this was a sexual marriage? I think I think he leans towards it being one. Okay, um, and so I, I want to make space that that it still may not be a sexual relationship. Um, but I want to read Lucy Walker's words, and and this is tricky because whether we're looking at Brian Hale's stuff, which is multiple documents, or whether we're reading off of a critical site. The trouble is making sure that we have a, a coherent story. And so um, I'm going to do my best to try and acknowledge where Lucy herself is speaking and where the author is essentially trying to connect the quotes together with historical context. Um, it says, while living in the Smith home, Lucy remembers, uh, and then this is her quote, in the year 1842, President Joseph Smith sought an interview with me and said, I have a message for you. I have been commanded of God to take another wife, and you are the woman. So there's that, there's that making her, imposing to her that she's the one that God has declared is to be the plural wife that Joseph is to take. This, this is firsthand from, from Lucy Walker? Yes, this is firsthand from Lucy Walker. Uh, and, and I also want to point out, Joseph does this thing where... Every woman he approaches, he says it in a way as to make her feel like she's the first one that's going to be part of this principle. In other words, I've been commanded to enter plural marriage, and you're the woman. So for that woman, if we just grant, for that woman, she doesn't know any of the other women, uh, most likely. At least in most of these cases, I think you can say that with absolutism. Um, that these women would have thought they were the very first plural wife outside of Emma. And there's a certain amount of pressure that comes with that. And there's a certain amount of not telling the full story, which I grant Joseph perhaps couldn't do because he has to protect these women and protect himself and protect the church. But at least, at least on the surface, uh, maybe that's the wrong way to say it. At least looking at it from the woman's point of view, She's only being given enough information to feel or think that she's the first plural wife outside of Emma. Um, let me go back to this. I have been commanded of God to take another wife, and you are the woman. My astonishment knew no bounds. This announcement was indeed a thunderbolt to me. He asked me if I believed him to be a prophet of God. Most assuredly I do, I replied. He fully explained to me the principle of plural or celestial marriage, said this principle was again to be restored. Now again, that, that quote, that, and we're getting this from her, and it's secondhand. Maybe this isn't how Joseph said it. But from her, it, she feels like it's going to be restored now, and she's the first plural wife. Well, she also says he fully explained to me the principle of plural marriage. Yeah, but, but I think that's the, and again, I'm saying I think, that sounds like that's the theology and when he says, um, he fully explained to me the principle of plural marriage. Now, the principle seems to be the, th the theology or celestial marriage. Said this principle was again to be restored. That sounds like future tense for the benefit of the human family. That it would prove an everlasting blessing to my father's house. 
Um, so there's, there's that idea of, of in the eternities, things are going to be much better. Right. What do you have to say? Joseph asked. Nothing, Lucy replied. How could I speak? Or what would I say? Uh, Joseph encouraged her to pray. Tempted and tortured beyond in, uh, endurance until life was... This is her quote. Tempted and tortured beyond endurance until life was not desirable. Oh, that the grave would kindly receive me that I might find rest on the bosom of my dear mother. Why, why should I be chosen from among the, thy daughters? Father, I am only a child in years and in experience. No mother to counsel, no father near me to tell me what to do. I want to I stop here and say, on some level, she's really vulnerable. Right. She doesn't have her mom. She doesn't have her dad. She's a 16-year-old girl living in the prophet's home, and she, she's dependent on the Smith family for her care. Whether Joseph acted unrighteously or not, I just want to state from her point of view She's extremely vulnerable. Right. Why, why, why should I be chosen from among thy daughters? Father, I'm only a child in years and experience. No mother to counsel, no father near me to tell me what to do in this trying hour. Oh, let this bitter cup pass. And thus I prayed in the agony of my soul. So that night, that night comes to a close. I have to assume she didn't sleep very much. You, I assume you would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, I'm sure it was terrifying. Yeah. So she's terrified. She's she's pleading out to Heavenly Father. And you and I are both saying she probably didn't sleep much that night. So that night comes to an end. This is the this is the author. Joseph told Lucy that the marriage would have to be secret, but that he would acknowledge her as his wife. Beyond the Rocky Mountains. That's that's Lucy's words. So in other words, at some future point I'll acknowledge you as my wife, but I can't do it now. He then gave Lucy an ultimatum. And I agree with you. <clears throat> There's just as much room well, to see this. What's that? Are, 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 is this the gate ultimatum? Yeah. So I'm, because I'm there's with four you. months that take place between the first approach and the gate ultimatum. Okay. Um, and and that I that I'll have to see. I don't I don't know that. I I assumed this was a day or two later. Um, and and I don't know that it impacts my argument on my end much, but I, I would love to see the evidence for that. Um, and I'm not disagreeing and I just don't know, but he then gave Lucy an ultimatum. And I agree with you that that ultimatum can be seen as simply your opportunity to enter plural marriage with me is done. Um, but I would also add that there is a lot of theological weight in these promises of eternity too, that she made to him earlier about, about her father that there's also, I think, just as much room to see Lucy, even if Joseph didn't intend it that way, that Lucy feels some salvific pressure uh, on herself, even if Joseph is innocent and not applying it with that motive. Um, so he, he then gives Lucy the ultimatum, quote, it is a command of God to you. I will give you until tomorrow. To decide this matter, if you reject this message, the gate will be closed forever against you. Lucy says, quote, this aroused every drop of scotch in my veins. I felt at this moment that I was called to place myself upon the altar, a living sacrifice, perhaps to brook the world in disgrace 
and to incur the displeasure and contempt of my youthful companions, all my dreams of happiness blown to the four winds. This was too much. The thought was unbearable. And it's at this point, she, she goes back to her private quarters for the night. And I assume you would agree again, the, the wording of this indicates she didn't sleep much that night either. Sure. Just it says uh, she couldn't, in fact, even tells us she couldn't sleep the entire night just before dawn and Joseph's deadline, quote, she received, and this is she, quote, received a powerful and irresistible testimony of the truth of the marriage covenant called celestial plural marriage. And I afterwards married Joseph as a plural wife and lived and cohabitated with him as such. So that sounds like in 1800s terms, she's acknowledging a sexual component. Um, and I want to say, you're right. She has a spiritual experience. I think a lot of people throughout history have, with religious systems, um, manipulated people when they don't have enough sleep into having spiritual experiences. And so I'm not, I'm not going to take it off the table and say, I deny Lucy's experience. It's not real. But I'm also hopeful that you will also concede that going without sleep through an entire night with the pressure that Lucy Walker felt and what her expectations are of what an answer looks like, that it's also reasonable to say that she likely could have felt things that night that were in her brain um, and not necessarily a spiritual experience. Well, I don't think there's any way to scientifically confirm a spiritual experience. Uh, I'm absolutely happy to concede the fact that that spiritual experiences are entirely subjective and they're very frustrating, I think, for any outsider to come in and assess uh, and to be able to, I mean, there, there's no possible way that anybody can point to anybody and say they've had a legitimate spiritual experience. The only way to know about a spiritual experience is to have a spiritual experience yourself. So yes, I am, I, I fully concede that I fully concede. She felt, she, she was under a great deal of stress, a great deal of pressure. That there was, this was a very, very difficult situation for her. I absolutely can see that. I can't possibly imagine how difficult this was for her and for other plural wives and for anybody involved in this practice. Uh, you know, Brigham Young used to, used to describe that when he first was told about it, it was the first time he envied the dead. That I, plural marriage, I think, was a massive trial for just about everyone involved. I have no idea how to be able to judge or measure how Joseph was feeling at this time. I mean, we look at that and say Joseph is the one applying the pressure, and so we shouldn't have you know any kind of consideration for stress that he may feel about this. But I, I think when you read Joseph's talking about plural marriage, that this was not something that he was eager to jump into. And he talks about the angel with the drawn sword because he was reluctant to enter into it. I think Joseph felt like he was under a great deal of stress and pressure, which may have been one of the reasons why he didn't handle this very well. But the thing that would, would, would argue, I think, for me, that Lucy Walker's spiritual experience was indeed genuine is that for the rest of her life, she was an ardent proponent of plural marriage and an absolute defender of its, of its divine origins. And so the fact that 
if this was just some kind of of psychological break that happened as the result of all the pressure that had been piled on her, I don't think that's something that would have uh, would have uh, been the foundation for the kind of faith that Lucy Walker demonstrated for the rest of her life. So I want to I want to push back there, which is that down here in southern Utah, I live really close to the Warren Jeffs group, right? Right. And there right. are women in that group who have had spiritual experiences. There are women in that group who even, and you and I, I think we both agree, Warren Jeffs is an evil man. Yes. And there are women in that group who have had spiritual experiences and to this day, after all that has occurred, still are avid proponents of plural marriage because of their spiritual experience. Well, I, again, I can't. Nobody. The thing about a spiritual experience that's so frustrating to outsiders is that there's no way to debunk them, and there's no way to be able to point at them and say your spiritual experience is not valid, whereas this spiritual experience or my spiritual experience or someone else's spiritual experience is valid. There's no way to do that. Uh, I would say if you look at the way the FLDS Church practices plural marriage and the kind of oppression that you that you see. Uh, the, Warren Jeffs is in, is in uh, prison for child rape. And, and I, I remember talking to my father about my grandmother, who was the daughter of, of, of a plural marriage, and saying, where, where does the FLDS stuff with these homespun dresses and you're not able to cut your hair and the kind of bizarre appearances that plural wives have to take on? Where does that come from? And I said, was that the case with my great-grandmother? And he said, absolutely not. These were actually the, the Pearl Wives in Utah. Utah was one of the first states to grant suffrage. These were women that were very independent in ways that, uh, that no other women of the time were. And he said, one of the things that, was, that, we, that we don't realize, for instance, is that uh, Plural husbands, well, I'm not plural, but, but polygamous men were very often treated as sort of strangers in their own home because they would go from home to home and none of the homes was their one place where they were. And the women were in charge of those households and the men were almost interlopers because they were visitors. They were not constant uh, residents of these households. And she said, I mean, the independence of women in Utah prior to the manifesto was in stark contrast to the kind of oppression that you see now in the FLDS community. The women in the FLDS community are property. Uh, they can be traded back and forth between husbands. It, it's a very different dynamic. And those kinds of plural marriages uh have been in existence far longer outside of the boundaries of the current LDS church than they were as part of the LDS church. So uh, almost all of the all of the accoutrements and all of the the things that are added on to the plural marriage experience in the FLDS church are unique to the FLDS church. That is not the way plural marriage was practiced. Uh back when it was within the mainstream church. Right. But but here's my pushback, and I, I feel like we went down a, 
down into the weeds. Okay. You said the the what the reason I place such faith in the Lucy Walker's spiritual experience is that she was a supporter of polygamy for the rest of her life, right. an ardent supporter. Right. And I and I'm simply saying that in a much more unhealthy paradigm where if you want to see the atrocities, they are right in front of your face. Right. There are women in the FLDS group who have had spiritual experiences who are still ardent supporters of polygamy despite how deeply unhealthy Warren Jeffs and that system is. Uh, I, that's a fair point. Okay. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's an important thing to the entire argument. I, I just think it's important to say like, Simply because someone has a spiritual experience and they support the thing they had a spiritual experience about, really in the scheme of the world when we look around, isn't – I don't mean to take it away from you, but it's really not a, a confident thing to place faith in as the reason. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying you don't have other reasons and that they're not valid, only that I, I can't let you throw that reason out because it seems so demonstrably false when you – compare it to other groups like the FLDS. Well, but on the flip side of that is is that nobody is capable of of dissecting someone else's spiritual experience. No, so, so, no, but but if if the LDS church is true, then the FLDS's spiritual experiences about keeping polygamy going are not true. Right? We are in, we are imposed into a binary choice that either LDS Mormonism is true, if, let me put it a different way, if LDS Mormonism is true, then, then the FLDS system is not true. Correct. And I would agree with that. I mean, I would say, okay, so, so if I were to have to argue this in a court of law, I would say that the amount of oppression that is heaped upon women in the FLDS church vastly exceeds any oppression that took place in the early days of plural marriage of the LDS church. And that, that, that kind of oppression and that kind of manipulation and the treatment of women as property has made it impossible for, for the women within that system to be able to have the kind of spiritual experiences that I would consider valid and that they are misinterpreting that. Now, there's no way I could prove that in a court of law there's no way because spiritual experiences are subjective, and I'm sure that if I were to get an FLDS woman on the stand, she would push back as hard as she possibly could and tell me I was going to hell, and absolutely she's had a spiritual experience that Warren Jeffs is a prophet and that her plural marriage is valid and all of that kind of thing. So I, I mean, I, I fully concede that there is no objective way to dissect a subjective spiritual experience. And that I have no proof of any of that, that there's no way I can prove that an FLDS spiritual experience is invalid and an LDS spiritual experience is valid. Uh, you, you, you make an excellent point. That's absolutely right. However, that's exactly what I believe. I believe that the FLDS system is a gross distortion of what plural marriage was in the early days of the church. And, and I believe there are abuses and manipulation and oppression there that uh, that have damaged generations of women in ways that I think are almost unforgivable. Right, which 
which I, I understand what you're saying, which is that the, the atrocities are so egregious in that community that the women are under such pressure to both have spiritual experiences as well as to uh, defend them and to believe in them wholeheartedly right. the rest of their lives. Right. I agree with you. But and so here's you're fighting the- that with Lucy Walker and saying I'm being a hypocrite by saying that Lucy Walker's faithfulness, and, and I think that's actually a fair point, uh, but but I would push back and say that I, I, I don't think that the two experiences between frontier women in the early days of plural marriage and the LDS church are, are equivalent to what's happening now in the FLDS church. So I, I agree with you. The point I was actually going to make, which is that the FLDS isn't the only group down here. Another group is called Centennial Park. And in Centennial Park, I've, I've eaten dinner with Arthur Hammond and his family. He's one of the top leaders in Centennial Park. And I, was, I had an expectation in my head when I went to eat dinner with this family. And my expectation was that I would see a ton of patriarchy and I would see women who were deeply oppressed. And that's not what I found. What I found was that these, the women in this house, the daughters, were smart. They were educated. They spoke freely. They spoke intelligently. They spoke articulately. It was obvious that these women had a lot of space to be individual uh, and to also have uh, some control over how their lives went. Well, that's very encouraging. Yeah. But these women also have spiritual experiences about polygamy and defend those spiritual experiences throughout their life. So I agree with you. Warren Jeffs in the FLDS group is a whole nother level of manipulation. But on the other hand, you also have this much softer group of Centennial Park, which I think actually would deeply resemble how us as Latter-day Saints practice polygamy early on. Right. And maybe even softer. Um, And with that said, these women also have spiritual experiences, which again, if LDS Mormonism is true, Centennial Park Mormonism is not. Those spiritual experiences are not real. And so I'm simply, all I'm trying to make the argument is that, is that Lucy Walker is extremely vulnerable. Right. She is in one of the most vulnerable positions a person could be in. Your dad is a thousand miles away. Your mom has just died recently. The Smith family, with Joseph being a prophet, have taken you into their home. They promise to take care of you as their children. And now you've got the prophet of the restoration of the, of the true and living church on earth telling you that he's going to restore polygamy, future tense, and that you're to be the wife, um, the plural wife. I, I, I just want to acknowledge like the amount, like first you and I would say like in 2019, we would recognize it would be unethical to approach a person in that situation with anything of that kind of sort of thing. Does that make sense? Oh, I think like, and, I, and it's presentism. I agree. Well, well, I mean, 2019, the idea of approaching anybody for any kind of plural marriage, particularly within the church, I, I think I can think of no faster way to get booted out of the church than becoming a plural, becoming a polygamist. Uh, so, sure, but I'm talking, I'm talking ethics and morals in a young person in this situation who's this vulnerable. Forget plural marriage; it would be inappropriate to a, to come to a person that vulnerable. In with any kind of serious life decision, 
and put pressure on them that in 24 hours, the gate is closed against them for that opportunity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Like take plural marriage off the table. Like it would be, it would be unethical in 2019. And I get, this is presentism, but it would be unethical in 2019 to go to a 16 year old girl who's just lost her mother, whose father's a thousand miles away um, and give her 24 hours to make any life decision. I'd agree with that. Yeah. And, And that's my only point. That's, that's, all of that, just to come back to the fact that now understanding human nature and where people can make responsible choices and when they can't, and again, we're more informed and educated, but we're also talking about Heavenly Father, who is all-knowing, and Heavenly Father being all-knowing, in my point of view, would recognize that it's deeply inappropriate to approach Lucy Walker in this state. Oh, well, okay. The, the, the issue of Heavenly Father, and I think we're going to get into this. I don't know if we're going to get into this today if we have time, but the whole idea of the prophetic mantle uh, and the idea of what kind of mistakes prophets are allowed to make and how much error Heavenly Father allows. Uh, I, I, I want to discuss that at length, and maybe this isn't the appropriate vehicle to do that. Yeah, we, I promise you we will cover the prophetic mantle and, and probably spend a significant amount of time on it. Right, because I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as a church today is in our hero worship of our prophets, our belief somehow that prophets are better people than we are, uh, prophets are incapable of making significant errors. I mean, we never talk about, uh, we always sort of, sort of, uh, reflexively say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know prophets are, are, are fallible. We know prophets are people. But when you push people, to, when you talk about that, you get down to the idea that, well, they're fallible to a certain degree. But beyond a certain degree, Heavenly Father does not allow them to make mistakes. I don't believe that. I believe Heavenly Father allows prophets to make big, monstrous mistakes the same way he allows me to make big, monstrous mistakes. And so my, my sense of this, my sense of plural marriage, is that Joseph was given a command and was flailing in the dark to some degree as to how to be able to do it, which led him to do things that were big mistakes. I think that, you know, everything you're outlining on this, the, the idea that Heavenly Father would step in and, and prevent Joseph from making mistakes with regard to plural marriage would, I think, fly in the face of the way he doesn't prevent prophets from making mistakes about anything. That that he expects us, the whole purpose of mortality and the purpose of the church is to teach us to be able to learn from our mistakes. And the church as a true and a living church, like all living things, uh, it has to learn and grow from those mistakes. So, so I, I, so putting, putting all of the pressure or all of the mistakes that Joseph makes in plural marriage and laying those directly at Heavenly Father's feet and saying, this is all your fault, I think flies in the face of how mortality is supposed to work. Okay. So then let me, let me maybe rephrase the argument you're making. Uh, and then we'll move away from Lucy Walker. I, I, Lucy Walker could be a two-hour podcast on its own. Um, sure. Heavenly Father commands Joseph to practice polygamy. Joseph is scared to death 
about getting caught publicly because one, it's illegal. And to some extent it's frowned upon. It's going to give his critics fodder for coming after him. Um, Emma is on the fence back and forth. And so he doesn't want to hurt her. Uh, but he also knows he has to do this. So Joseph, again, you're agreeing. Heavenly Father is all-knowing. It, it seems, it seems un- irrational that Heavenly Father would command Joseph to go approach this young girl in this particular vulnerable moment in this deeply unhealthy way. Um, so maybe Joseph, on his own, looks for those who are... Uh, most prone to agree and to keep it secret. So on some level, not that not that he is intentionally going like, oh, Lucy's going to be easy to manipulate. I'm going to manipulate her. Um, this will be this will be the the easiest target for me. Not not I'm not saying that, but that in some sense he realizes that she is more vulnerable than others, and hence he words it to her as if Heavenly Father is the one commanding it to be her. But it's Joseph Smith who's actually choosing her and and that he does choose her in what you and I in 2019 would say is a deeply unhealthy moment to put that kind of pressure on somebody in a major life decision. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I, 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 would, I would The only place I'd push back, and I don't know how hard I'd push back, but uh, Joseph's wording, thou art the woman... Uh, I don't think that's necessarily. I, mean, I I don't see compelling evidence that Joseph is receiving revelations with regard to specific names of women he's supposed to take as plural wives. Right, but that she would have. I do see. I do see evidence that he, that that you can interpret the language there. That a woman would interpret that language as saying, "Oh, well, Heavenly Father wants you to marry me, and he's he singled me out." But I think that's that's a choice from Joseph. I don't think that comes from a specific revelation. I think the revelations that we see with regard to plural marriage are you need to practice plural marriage. And so so the timeline seems to be, okay, he gets a revelation 1831, you need to practice plural marriage. He waits for five years and, and is feeling this pressure, I need to practice plural marriage. And so... Well, how am I going to do this? Well, here's this girl that works in my house. I mean, to me, that's the, that's a terrible decision. This is a girl who works in your house. That's going to be a huge problem. That's going to be a mess. You ought to go and approach somebody outside of your house, somebody older, perhaps. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I if if I were the one telling Joseph how to practice plural marriage, I would advise him against doing yeah, this. Yeah, everything. But nobody's advising him to right. do anything. Everything about this. And he's playing right. around. And he, and he makes yeah. mistakes. That's the way I right. see it. Everything about the Lucy Walker situation points to this is unethical. And, and I know that's a 2019 view, but again... It's, no, I, it's, I, 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 I'm not trying to argue against that. I, I would have to agree with it. Right, I would say I would say it's Joseph making a mistake, doing something wrong. I don't think it's Joseph trying to be predatory. I think it's Joseph flailing in the dark, doesn't know how to do this, doesn't know how, and so uh, in in a moment of weakness, he thinks, well, here's somebody I can, here's somebody who'll say yes, right, and and if you or I were standing next to him, we'd say, well. 
her mother just died, her father's gone, could you please, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea, Joseph. I, I, I think, yes, absolutely, uh, that counsel, it would have been nice if there were somebody whispering in his ear saying, don't do that. But I, I think Joseph, Joseph was, was, was adrift to some degree in that he just had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. And me granting a little bit of space back would be that, again, this is 18, whatever it is, 42, I think. And so in 1842, the whole idea of having conversations about healthy space and boundaries and all of that is something that is yet to be professionalized. Right. Um, so, so I'm granting, like, it may not have been an intentional thing on Joseph's part. I'm only pointing to um, the worst person in the worst moment for Joseph to pick was Lucy Walker. Being in the home, referred to as his own daughter, dad's on a mission, mom has just died, um, 24 hours to think about it, the gate is closed against you, whatever that means, I'm here to restore plural marriage. He first introduces the doctrine four months before he gives her 24 hours. Sure. Uh, I, I'm looking, I also go to, to, to Brian Hales here. Uh, she, they were married in May of 1843, and she was first told about plural marriage in 1842. So, so there, there is space here. There's a little more space here than the 24-hour overnight ultimatum. She had time to, and maybe it's not a good thing. She had time. She had much more time to agonize over it than I think that a lot of critics are granting. Right, but when she's given the 24 hours, when she's given, you have, you have one more night, otherwise the gate is closed against you. She then at that, at that point has one more night. Right. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm simply pointing at again, heavily to make this issue work in this Lucy Walker story. You, you simply can't have heavenly father, commanding Joseph to approach Lucy Walker. That makes Heavenly Father something I can't believe in. Like he he Heavenly Father becomes something bad. If I if I allow Heavenly Father to say like Joseph, go approach that girl over there you're taking care of as your daughter in your home whose father you sent on a mission, whose mom has just died and give her 24 hours to figure this out. Like I can't do that. And, and it seems like you can't do that either. So, I'm not so, doing that. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm saying Heavenly Father gave Joseph a, a great deal of latitude, which Joseph misused on some occasions, including this. Perfect. And, and, and I want, again, the listener to get, you and I are in agreement, Heavenly Father had nothing to do with selecting Lucy Walker. Joseph does it on his own. And all all fingers point to that being the worst person to pick if you want this to be portrayed as a healthy practice. Um, let's let's move on to the Partridge sisters. You mentioned them. Joe and, and, and again, I think Lucy too, not known to Emma, and we find that with the Partridge sisters as well. The Partridge sisters, again, in the Smith home, a little older this time, I think 18 and 22 or 19 and 22. So at least, uh, at least by even 2019 standards, they are adults, although very young adults. Well, and I want to make the point too. And I think I think there have been a lot of defenders of Joseph who have tried to argue that you know 14 year old marriages were just ridiculously commonplace, and that was no big deal that he was marrying young girls 
And that's not the case. A 14-year-old, uh, you know, Helen Mar Kimball being the 14-year-old, uh, I think the evidence points to that being a dynastic ceiling and not a not an actual marriage, and there wasn't sexual a sexual component to it. But if we don't want to be presentist, I think it's helpful to go back and look at the criticisms that were leveled against Joseph Smith and leveled against the Mormons at the time when they were engaged in polygamy. And the idea that they were marrying underage girls was not one of them. Uh, I mean, Joseph was not criticized by contemporaries for marrying women who were too young to get married. Uh, maybe that they didn't know how many young girls Joseph was marrying. Uh, but I think it likely that, you know, a, a 16, a 17 year old, that's not particularly unusual for somebody that age to get married. Uh, certainly 19 and 22. By the time you're 22, that's not at all unusual. Uh, so, and I think that also weighs into polyandry, which I'm assuming we're going to discuss as we get in here, is that the charge of polyandry was not leveled against Joseph Smith during his lifetime or even after his lifetime, which suggests that the relationships and what we would call polyandry were not sexual relationships, uh, because if they were, they would have generated a great deal of scandal, and the accusations of polyandry come long, long after the fact from, I think, presentist people who go back and look at this and say, all right, you're practicing this practice that is abhorrent, and it would have been abhorrent to them if they were practicing it in the way that they are accused of practicing it in 2019. So so the, the whole idea of underage girls and all of that kind of thing, I think we're looking at that largely through a presentist lens, because that wasn't an accusation that was made against Joseph at the time. Right. And, and I, and I want to just repeat something you said, because I think this is an important point too, which is that you, you and I are in agreement that while some apologists want to argue that 14-year-olds getting married was normal, it wasn't. It wasn't. And, and even in the occasions when that happened, and we can look at the data. There's marriage data actually from this time period, and we can see that women on average were marrying about a year and a half earlier than what they do today. Um, maybe as much as two, two and a half years. Oh, it's got to be uh, more than that, because today the marriage, I mean, women are, are getting married in their mid to late 20s now. Yeah, I, I'm, okay. I'm going off of whatever the most recent data I saw, I think was the average age was 22 to 23, and the average age back then was like 19 and a half. Um, I don't and, and, believe the average age today is 22, 23. I'd have to look that up. I think yeah, it's I don't know. later. And it, than, but anyway. The surveys I saw may have been like ended in 2013 or something. Um I'm going to Google while we talk here. Good yeah, sure. And, and regardless, the average age of marriage in in the 1800s, mid-1800s, I think is around 19, 19 and a half. And simply, I think you and I are in agreement. Again, 14-year-old brides would have been abnormal. And even when it happened, it would have been a 14-year-old and a 19-year-old, a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, or 14-year-old and a 22-year-old. It wouldn't have been a 14-year-old and a 40-year-old. Uh, no, absolutely. Right. Uh, just pulling up, Women's Health Magazine says the average age of first marriage for women in 2017 was 27.4 gotcha. years. Yeah, that is late. Um, so the idea that to defend polygamy like, hey, these young marriages, it's way normal back then. That's not true. 
So you and I are in agreement on that. We are in agreement on that. Yeah. And and when there again, when there was a young marriage, it would have been also the 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 male spouse would have also been relatively young and everybody in the town on the rare rare occasion that a 40-year-old man was marrying a 14-year-old girl, everyone in the town would have had an eyebrow raised. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um the Partridge sisters uh, the two Partridge sisters, again, they're in the home of Joseph Smith. They're, I think, 19 and 22, 18 and 22. I, again, age, I don't think, is a is a big concern for me. Um, I do think that a 40-year-old and an 18-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 22-year-old is on the extreme 1% end of the spectrum and would have raised eyebrows, but at least they're adults, and so I'm not going to make the argument about them being young and naive and all that. What I would say, though, is that the two of them are approached by Joseph Smith separately. We, I think we have enough data here to say that there is some sexuality to this. There's uh, accounts of uh, from one of the Partridge sisters that Joseph was in the room with, with her uh, all night. Um, these two sisters are sealed to Joseph Smith or married to Joseph Smith, and I don't need to debate that. I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll concede sealing if we need to. But, they're, but it's separate from each other. They don't know about the other one. At least that's where the data points. And Emma obviously didn't know about either of them because, as you point out, uh, Joseph remarries them again. Yeah, he finally gets the approval of Emma. Emma says, okay, you can do celestial marriage and let's pick these Partridge sisters since they're in the home and I can keep kind of an eye on them. Uh, And so Joseph does this mock marriage. Emma thinks it's the first marriage. The Partridge sisters both know it's the second um, and I just want to, I just want to put the question to you, uh, by your own, by your own standard of how you live in your relationship with your wife, right. are you willing to deem that, that, that lacked fidelity? Well, I'm willing to deem that it's inappropriate and messy. When, when you start saying lacked fidelity, I feel like what you're trying to say is that was adultery. And I'm not willing to go that far because I think Joseph was trying very hard to sort of live by the rules that he had set with regard to what was a marriage and what was not a marriage. And you look at section 132 and it talks about the law of Sarah. And if the first wife refuses to accept the principle, she's going to be destroyed. And so Joseph felt entirely justified that if Emma had rejected plural marriage, that he felt like it's still his responsibility to enter into plural marriage. So when you say, if if I were to do that, if I were to go and marry other women without telling my wife, uh, I think absolutely that would lack fidelity and that would be adultery. I think Joseph, in terms of how he had set up what plural marriage was supposed to be, uh, was doing everything he possibly could to abide by the rules that he had set. And in Joseph's mind, he did not believe that lacked fidelity. But I look at that and say, Joseph, this is nuts. This is a mess. Uh, So, I mean, I would be very judgmental, yes. But I'm not willing to cross the line and say this was adultery because I think Joseph was doing what he could to abide with the principles of plural marriage as he understood them. And I think he's he's going to be held accountable as to whether or not he crossed any kind of line. Uh, but 
but I, I, I want to come up to that line and say, I'm not willing to make that final judgment. I am willing to, you know, say that if I were to do that, that I would be committing adultery. Yeah. And, and I, I want you to know the adultery thing. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not. So let me put it this way. Do I think, so I'm as a, as somebody who no longer believes in the church, do I think Joseph committed adultery? Absolutely. In this conversation with you, I don't want to go there on this, on this particular experience because that's not what I'm talking about. So let's set adultery off to the side. Let's assume you and I for the, for, are going to safely assume for this conversation that Heavenly Father commanded Joseph to practice polygamy um, and, and that it falls into the paradigm that you have made space for for Joseph. So I, I'm not debating whether Joseph committed adultery or not. What I'm debating is whether even if God commanded it, between Joseph and Emma, was that was Joseph's exercising polygamy the way he did with the Partridge sisters and others, but we were specifically talking about them, did his interaction with Emma in that experience lack integrity and lack fidelity and, and specifically fidelity. And, and I, and I, I feel like there's no way around it. I feel like if God commanded you, Jim Bennett to practice polygamy and you went and picked a woman somewhere and didn't tell your wife. And then six months later, your wife gave you permission and you had a second mock marriage that you intended to deceive your wife into thinking was the first one. I think it would I think we would all like come down and say like dude that 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 lacks some fidelity, that lacked integrity. Uh, I don't think there's any way around that. I think you're right. Yeah. Right. So even if God's commanding polygamy, I think the listener has to come to grips and and, and I think you're acknowledging this. I, I think you're I think there's a game here, and I don't mean this as any offense, because I played this game for years, which is only to give as much ground as you have to. Um, but I think even if we grant Heavenly Father commanded polygamy, once we walk the logic out, we get painted into a corner where we simply have to say, look, Joseph lacked fidelity with Emma in how he practiced polygamy. He looked to deceive her. He was dishonest. And that means that entire situation lacked integrity. Now, I'm not saying that you have to walk away and say, like, the church isn't true. And, you know, that means the church isn't what it claimed to be and I'm gone. But I think it forces all of us to say, like, oh, if I'm going to live with the church being true, I'm going to have to really come to grips with just how fallible, how deceptive, how how much of a lack of integrity my founder had as he put these principles and practices into motion. And that, that's all I'm trying to get to. Well, so I don't think that's what the game is. I mean, I'm willing to acknowledge that there's kind of a game here, but, but um, because I want to concede 100% that leaders of the church, including Joseph Smith, are as fallible as you and I are and can make as many mistakes as you and I are. And so and maybe more. Well, sure. sure. Well, no, no, I'm capable of making all kinds of mistakes. I'm capable of doing all kinds of terrible things. Thankfully, I haven't done a lot of terrible things, at least not beyond the bounds of you know whatever it was Joseph Smith said no one should think me guilty of any whatever sins. But but I 
the game here or, or, or the principle here, I, I think, is, okay, I try to imagine what would happen if I were placed in Joseph Smith's position. And this is how what I imagine Joseph Smith's position to be. Joseph Smith's position is, you are commanded to restore the ancient practice of plural marriage that was practiced by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of these people, and go go do it. And here are the rules, and here are the boundaries. And then Joseph is left, okay, well, how do I do this? What do I do? And he's just given these instructions that you find in D&C 132, and it's up to him to figure out how to do it. And so, so when you say, okay, this lacked fidelity, this lacked integrity, it did not lack fidelity or integrity to D&C 132. That is to say, I think Joseph looked at this and said, this is within the bounds of what I am allowed to do. If my wife refuses to let me have a plural wife, I am allowed to have plural wives without telling her. And so he is trying to balance, I think, uh, he's trying to walk a line that's impossible to walk. He's trying to walk a line between maintaining fidelity to Emma and maintaining fidelity to D&C 132 or to the revelation that he's had to what he does. And so he sacrifices his fidelity to Emma in order to keep fidelity with God. I think that's, I mean, you, you can certainly push back and say, well, that's nonsense and God would never command that. And that's a separate discussion to some degree. But but when you keep saying this lacks fidelity, I would agree that it lacks fidelity to Emma. And I think, but I think it was because he was trying to keep fidelity with God. And I think in that process, he made big, messy mistakes that, that he wasn't doing this well. And I wonder, were I thrust in that situation, uh, would I do any better? I'm not convinced that I would. Uh, if I were to go out and find a plural wife now, I wouldn't be trying to keep fidelity with God because I'm under no illusion or under no uh, idea that God is commanding me to take a plural wife. I think that you look at the life of Joseph Smith, and I think it's very hard to argue that he didn't believe that he was called of God to do these things. I think the way he practiced plural marriage, it seems very clear to me that whether or not God commanded him to do it, Joseph believed God had commanded him to do it. And the way Joseph practiced plural marriage uh, was much more as a religious principle and as something that he thought was a high-minded way of sealing and binding families together. And the way we talk about sealing in the church now and we talk about families could be together forever. In Joseph's mind, that was inextricably linked with polygamy, with plural marriage, that there wasn't any kind of ceiling that existed outside of plural marriages. And so I look at that and say, I, 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 I don't want to play any kind of game and try to pretend that Joseph was being more honest with Emma than he was being. It's very clear, particularly with the Partridge sisters, that Joseph had not told her about it, and Joseph is trying to deceive her into thinking that the sham marriage the second time is the first marriage. I don't, I, I don't, I don't see any any logical way to say 
to, to, to try to say that that isn't exactly what it seems to be. What I'm trying to say is that in Joseph's mind, I'm trying to judge Joseph according to how Joseph thought of himself. And I fully believe Joseph believed that plural marriage was an essential doctrine that he was commanded to practice. And so I think he was trying very hard to keep fidelity with God and in doing so in instances, and we don't know how many, but here's one where it's very clear. Uh, in several instances, he broke fidelity with Emma to do that. Okay. And then I would only want to finish by saying, I'm not arguing that God placed Joseph in a lose-lose situation. Maybe if you and I and and other smart minds sat around and tried to figure out uh, what Joseph could have done and how he could have done it with with still maintaining integrity with his wife and fidelity with his wife, maybe there's a way he could have done it. But at least in this scenario, to hold to hold out a faithful position. I think you'd almost have to agree that Joseph felt like God had placed him in a lose-lose situation. Oh, sure. Uh, it, it, I, think, I think members of the church, I, I would agree with you that members of the church have to come to terms with the fact that prophets are capable of lying, that prophets are capable of sinning, and that prof prophets make mistakes and make the same mistakes that you and I make. And that's why I keep saying, if I, I, I keep trying to say, I'm trying to put myself in the position of Joseph. I think, I think faithful members of the church will often look at Joseph and, and assume that he is on some kind of spiritual plane so high above where we would be that, that we just can't. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in a previous conversation, but I, I had that conversation in a gospel doctrine class, we were talking about uh, the priesthood revelation, and somebody brought up the idea that it was a mistake. And uh, a leader in our in our ward said, "Oh, you have to realize that the prophets and apostles are living on a spiritual plane that we can almost not comprehend. That they're so far above us in in how they're." And I raised my hand and I said, I think there are 15 people in this room, male and female, who are as righteous as the prophets and apostles. Uh, I, I don't think the prophets and apostles are different than we are. I don't think they're better than we are necessarily. I think they are given callings and responsibilities that we are called upon to sustain and recognize. But I fully believe that if we had to staff the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency for members of my ward, that there are plenty of righteous people in my ward and in your ward and anybody's ward to be able to do that. So I don't think Joseph was this remarkably different person from the kind of people that we are. And so I look at how I would manage plural marriage. I, mean, I look at the tensions in my marriage throughout my 25 years of marriage and things that I have done and and ways I have conducted myself. I mean, I haven't been unfaithful to my wife, but I have been in situations where I haven't wanted to tell her things and I haven't want you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I fully understand that if I were trying to keep this kind of a secret from her, I've never tried to keep a secret this massive from her that I'm married to other women. But 
I, I am absolutely sure that if I were trying to do this and felt like I, I was commanded by God to do this, that I would botch it far worse than Joseph did. So I'm willing to give Joseph a little more space because I know that if I were put in that situation, that I would really make a mess of it. Yeah, and, and I, I want to grant, because I, I think being vulnerable there, I want to acknowledge, like, I think we all do that. I think we all have little moments where, you know, say I'm, I'm walking through Walmart and, and, you know, some attractive lady smiles at me and I smile back, right? So I, I don't go home and tell my wife, hey, the, you know, hot girl just smiled. Like, on some level, we're all doing right, some right. of that kind of thing, right? Right. Um, so I, I want to at least say that. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping, and what I mean by the game, and I, I don't, I don't mean this is like cat and mouse or anything. What I mean by this is that we have a tribal identity, right? And we have an individual identity, right? And our tribal identity calls us to be loyal and to fit in and to belong. And in supporting that tribal identity, we never want our tribe to look bad, and so we always try to only give the ground we're required to give and to protect as much as possible the image and uh, integrity of our tribe. and But as individuals, we often believe and think things very different than the tribe does collectively. And sometimes in a system, we're hesitant to go there and, and to acknowledge like, oh, here's what my tribe collectively thinks, but man, I flat out disagree. Here's where they're off. And I want to grant, like you've done that a bunch, I think, in these conversations to say like, look, the average Mormon's going to say this, but that's not the ground I hold. Here's where I'm at. And I appreciate that. And I'm hoping you can do that here. And whatever answer you give, I'm going to trust that that's the honest answer. And by honest, I mean your individual answer, not your tribal answer. Okay. Yeah, sure. Right? Because I, I think both are honest. I don't mean like you're lying. It's only that sometimes we word things as part of a tribe that's different than if we said, like, if you just ask me, here's what I think. Um. Because I think it's I think it's not fair for people to point at other humans and say you're only holding one answer inside your brain. I think we're complex, and I hold I hold. If you said like, is there a God? I've got ten answers in my brain that all have validity in terms of whether I believe them. Right, like on the amount of degree I believe those. Um, and so I couch this question in that, and I'm hoping for your individual answer. If you had a 15 year old daughter, Jim. Would you and, and, and Joseph Smith? I have fifteen-year-old daughters. They're much a little older now. Okay, so if 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 Joseph Smith approached your fifteen-year-old daughters and said, "I'd like you guys to work in my home," and your daughters came home and told you that, knowing what you know now, would you let your fifteen-year-olds work in the Smith home? No. Yeah, yeah, and and I think most of us as people who dive into the data. When I've asked apologists this, they refuse to answer. And that bothers the heck out of me oh. because a refusing to answer tells me the answer, but it just says you don't want to be on the record saying it. No, absolutely not. I, I, I wouldn't want my 15 year old daughter anywhere near that. And I wouldn't want my 15 year old daughter anywhere near polygamy. I mean, I look at polygamy and I look at plural marriage and I am so grateful that I didn't have to go through any kind of, of wrestle with the spirit to try to figure out whether or not I ought to practice it. You know, so I'm, I'm removed enough by time and history to say, I don't have to be a plural. I don't have to enter into plural marriage. I don't have to be a polygamist. So, so no, I mean, uh, I, 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 to, to, to maybe help the apologists who refuse to answer that question. 
uh, I think I probably, if I were back then and Joseph were to approach me, uh, I think I would wrestle. I mean, I, I would take time to wrestle with it. Uh, so, but at the same time, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't want my children anywhere near that. And at least part of the reason I'm assuming is that, you know, inside your head, like, Ooh, there's a chance that Joseph would act without a level. Like, like, let me put it this way. There's a lot of reasons why I might not let my daughter work in the home. One is that all of it's from God and Joseph's directed by God but I just don't want my kid involved in that, even if God's the one directing it. And that's that's right. exactly where I am. I mean, yeah. Even if Joseph were to behave entirely appropriately, I don't want my children anywhere near polygamy if they don't have to be. Is is there a part of you, even is there a part of you that worries that, oh, like I'm risking something icky knowing that the history is messy? Uh, I don't understand the question. Um, is there a part of your apprehension that has to do with the fact that you understand this historical context is complex and there is at least the smallest of chances I think there is that Joseph huge, is acting inappropriately? I think there is a huge chance that history and, and polygamy is messy. I, I don't think there's any way to deny that history and polygamy is messy. Yeah, yeah but that's not what I'm saying. When, so, when you say that Joseph is acting inappropriately... Is there a little bit of fear on your part that Joseph would act inappropriate with your 15-year-old daughter that at least makes up, I don't want to say significant, but a portion? Well, that's, but that's, that's almost two different questions, I think. Because uh, for Joseph to marry my 15-year-old daughter is by definition in 2019 acting inappropriately. So that's the entire reason I wouldn't want my daughter to go work in the Smith household is because by my standards, what Joseph would do, even if he's commanded by God or anything else, by my standards, by the way I've raised my children and by the way I understand how marriage is supposed to work, that's inappropriate for a married man to approach a 15-year-old daughter and ask her to marry him. So I I, I concede that 100%. what what I'm trying to say though is is I'm trying to grant enough space to say Joseph thought he was acting according to the will of God. Uh, the women that he approached and that he talked about talk about their spiritual experiences that insist that it was from God, and so I don't want to take my unease and my sense that that's icky and place it on them and say, you need to have said that this is icky or your experience is not legitimate or this is all this kind of stuff. So, so, so I mean, the, the way you've worded that question makes it kind of difficult for me to say both of those things because I don't want, I don't want to give anybody any impression that, oh, yeah, the idea that, my, that a prophet wants to marry my 15-year-old daughter and I'm going to be okay with that, oh, yeah, bring it on. That's wonderful. I, I don't feel that way. That makes me deeply uneasy. I think it's extraordinarily icky. I think it's extraordinarily messy. And I think you look back at the history of polygamy and you can find all kinds of things, I think, that are extraordinarily icky and messy. I, I, I don't think it helps anybody to try to pretend that that's not the case. I, I, think, I think even if you were to talk to Joseph Smith, he would be the first to admit to you this is a mess. I don't know how to do this. And and so 
so I, I'm willing to grant you 100% of all of that. What I'm not willing to do is say that means that Joseph and plural marriage and all of that was entirely not of God because I'm not, I, I, I can't get there because all of the doctrines of sealing and all of the things that we hold dear as Latter-day Saints in 2019, uh, a great deal of them have to do with Section 132 and with the practice of plural marriage. And so even though we no longer practice plural marriage, uh, all of those doctrines and all of those sealing doctrines are very precious to me and precious to the church. And so I, I, I'm not willing to throw right. the baby I, out with the bathwater, even though I can recognize that the bathwater is pretty is pretty yeah. dirty. Yeah. I want, I want to move on because I want to make sure we finish polygamy at least so we can get into a new subject next time we talk. But I'm simply saying that towards the end of my belief, like when I was getting towards the end and I was starting to say like, oh, wait a minute, maybe – Maybe this isn't true. Um, it was a question that I asked myself. Would I, would I allow a 15-year-old daughter to work in the Smith home? And I, and, I, and I said no. And then the next question is why? Why would I say that? What's my reasoning? And to a large extent, my reasoning was that I had doubts about Joseph Smith's character. And part of me as a parent would be scared to death knowing the history, knowing its messiness, that there is a risk here that Joseph Smith's character is not, is not sufficient enough for me to trust my daughter in his home. And I was simply trying to get at whether you, whether you would acknowledge, and, and I'm not saying like it's there and you're not acknowledging it. I'm, I'm, ask, I'm trusting that you're being honest, but that on some level, there's at least a piece of you, I'm asking if there was a piece of you that says, yeah, you know, I'm 90% sure this is all good, but yeah, there's 10% of me that, that is worried about the character of Joseph Smith that I wouldn't trust my daughter in his home. Well, the thing that we have that Lucy Walker's father didn't have and that, that anybody else that entrusted their children to work in the Smith home didn't have is we have 150 years of hindsight and we have the record. Uh, what they had was a testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith rooted largely, I think, in the Book of Mormon. And I have that too. I mean, whenever I look at Joseph Smith and whenever I look at any kind of imperfections and any kind of mistakes that Joseph Smith made, I keep coming back to the Book of Mormon, which to me is the tangible miracle at the center of my faith. Uh, it, saying Joseph Smith was, was a sexual predator doesn't explain where the Book of Mormon came from. And it doesn't explain how the Book of Mormon is an access point to the divine for not just me, but for millions of members of the church. And so the reason why people are, the reason why I think apologists aren't willing to just say, oh no, we wouldn't send him to work with a sexual predator, is that there is a testimony of Joseph Smith that exists independent of plural marriage or, or that, that came before any understanding of plural marriage. And so it's impossible, I think, for faithful Latter-day Saints who have a strong testimony rooted in the Book of Mormon to look at plural marriage in a vacuum. I mean, if I were to look at plural marriage, and I said this about the Book of Abraham, if the Book of Abraham came forward in a vacuum, I would reject it probably because, uh, I don't have any evidence that he can receive this sort of catalyst of a revelation to get some kind of ancient text. Whereas I have the Book of Mormon as evidence that this is something that this 
prophet is capable of doing. And so I'm willing to give Joseph the benefit of doubts that I wouldn't be willing to give him if the Book of Mormon didn't exist. And so the people who entrusted their daughters to the Joseph Smith household had a testimony of Joseph Smith the prophet that gave them confidence and and you you can argue and I think there there is an argument that Joseph crossed lines that uh, they didn't expect him to cross because they had faith in him as a prophet but their trust in Joseph uh was not affected by the 150 years of hindsight that we have so so I, I, I just think it's important to recognize that whenever you look at Joseph Smith, you have to understand that any kind of action of Joseph Smith cannot be considered in isolation. It has to be considered within the entire context of his whole ministry and his whole life. And in doing that, I'm willing to make allowances for Joseph that I wouldn't be willing to make, that I'm not willing to make for Warren Jeffs, that I'm not willing to make for other people who try to claim that they have the authority from God to do things that I'm not comfortable with and that I don't agree with. Perfect. Um, I actually don't want to talk about polyandry only because I think we've, we've covered the essential questions that come up in polyandry within these other stories. And, and so by granting, like, look, there are serious mistakes, Yes, Joseph lacked integrity with Emma while he's trying to maintain integrity with God. I think all of that solves the very questions I would ask with polyandry. And so I don't even, I don't even want to go there because I think it's just – we would essentially be hitting the same ideals again. Okay. The, the things I do want to cover um, is the secrecy one, and, and I think you and I would be in agreement. Joseph was deceptive in how he talked about whether he was practicing polygamy or not to the public – to Emma, to the wives about each other, like they didn't know about each other. And the debate would be like, the critic would say like, Joseph's a liar. There it is. We're done with him. The reality is again, like every other issue, it's complex. Um, there's something to be said about lying, not always being wrong. And that sometimes we have to lie to truly deeply have integrity and protect those around us. And Joseph, there's if Joseph is to be honest publicly about the the breadth and scope of polygamy, it's not only harm to himself; it's harm to others that would come. Um, and and so I'm willing to just set it aside and say, like, yeah, he was deceptive, but maybe that deception was even necessary. And so I I wouldn't even want to fight that issue. And I'm assuming you would agree essentially with what I just said. To some degree, I push back. I I think Joseph was was Clintonian, <laughs> if that's a word. Uh, you know, you, you look at, at Bill Clinton talking about the definition of is, is, and playing parsing word games in order to be able to claim that testimony he gave that was false wasn't really false if you, if you look at the words. Bushman in Rough Stone Rolling talks about the carefully worded polygamy denials, and you look at them, and they are all very carefully worded. He's leaning on the idea that, jo that Emma is on his only legal wife, which was true, which was accurate. And so, you know, he says, people tell me I, I uh, have seven wives, and I look, and I can only see one. I mean, he's, he's talking about, you know, legally, Emma was his only legal wife. Okay, 
Well, that's true, but he's he's leaning on that to give the deceptive impression that that he's not married to any other women, which is not true. And a lie is anything done with the intent to deceive. Uh, the other thing that I really want to point out, too, is that the, the one affidavit that he signed that is usually used as the standard to point out, yes, look how Joseph lied about polygamy, was an affidavit that he signed along with several of his plural wives, where they insisted that they were not engaged in spiritual lifeism. And presentists look back at that and say, well, he's saying he's not engaged in polygamy. No, that's not what he was saying. He was saying that he was not engaged in John C. Bennett's practice of spiritual wifeism, which was to go to a woman and say, we are spiritually married so we can have sex. Don't tell your husband. That is not what Joseph was doing. And in his mind, and I think in the minds of most of the people in Nauvoo at the time, Plural marriage, as Joseph was practicing, it was different from what John C. Bennett was doing. And that affidavit was designed specifically to make that case. So I don't think that's as strong evidence that Joseph was lying as the critics use it to be. So, so I, yeah, th there is complexity here, but I will absolutely grant that Joseph was dishonest about his practice of polygamy for whatever reason. And, and, and you can find high-minded reasons. I mean, in my CES letter reply, I talk about Kant's acts, whereas Immanuel Kant was the philosopher who believed it was never appropriate to tell a lie. And so one of his students posited the idea of a woman is under attack from an axe murderer, and she runs into your house and hides, and the axe murderer shows up and says, where is the woman? What's the moral thing to do? And Immanuel Kant said the moral thing to do is to say, the woman is in my closet, but you're going to have to go through me to get to her. And I look at that and say, no, the moral thing to do is, oh, she ran down the street, you can just catch her. And that's a lie. But it's more important to be able to preserve the safety of the woman you're trying to protect than it is to tell the truth. Every value I mean, this is, this is the struggle of mortality that comes back to the original choice in the garden, is which value is more important. And sometimes you have to sacrifice a less important value to honor a higher value. And I don't, I'm not trying to say that's necessarily what Joseph was doing, but I am trying to say that's what Joseph thought he was doing. And I think we ought to judge him based on how he saw himself. Yeah. And I agree. Everything you just said on that question, I agree with 100%. So uh, we could set that one off to the side. The The last issue I want to cover in polygamy is simply post-manifesto. And again, I think you and I, for the most part, will agree, which is the church is under a ton of pressure from the government. Wilford Woodruff issues the manifesto in 1890 with the idea that he is appeasing the U.S. government, they, they think it's ended, but in reality, he still sees the principle as crucial He's to restoration. What's that? He's driving it underground. Yeah. So he sends, uh, he gives an edict to uh, certain members of the church to go to various places. Uh, I think for a long time we said, like, nope, polygamy ended in 1890, and we now know, like, nope, that's not the case. Then we tried to make the argument, and I'm talking about we as a, as, an, a, as a collective defense of the faith, we tried to make the argument that 
he sent them to countries where it was legal, Mexico and Canada. But we also know now that that's not exactly the case either. Some of it was in the United States. That Wilford Woodruff still believed the principle to be essential and necessary. Um, and so he gives certain members the edict to go places, establish polygamous communities, be in some ways disconnected from us, but at some point when the U.S. government comes around, we'll bring you back in. And I think it's an important point because most Mormons judge the FLDS and other groups as if they just went off the rails. And the reality is originally they deeply, and to some extent today still, they believed deeply that they were given direction, prophetic direction from a prophet of God that this principle was needed, that the main church was going to have to look like they weren't doing it, and that at all costs, keep it going. And I think that's important to understanding. And I also think it's important for us as Mormons to give some validation to those groups for what they did at the expense they did it. Um, Polygamy continues. Wilford Woodruff uh, passes away. Uh, Joseph, I believe Joseph F. Smith in 1904 issues a second manifesto. And if we look at the disciplinary court of John W. Taylor, it appears, again, I think it's by far the most reasonable way to see it when we read his words, is that he's telling the Quorum of the Twelve, like, you guys ought to leave me alone. I've got permission from the guy down the hall, Joseph F. Smith, to continue this principle um, but it but it can't be talked about. We can't we can't go there. So leave me be. And if you need to excommunicate me, do it. But quit asking me questions because these answers are only going to hurt us collectively. And that the church, while it likes to say it ended polygamy in 1890, the reality is it had no intention at that time of ending polygamy. And it's only a prophet or two later that the church finally says like, oh. We just can't. We just can't do this. So let's end it completely. And that sounds like it happened somewhere around 1910. Um, anything there that you see as a major disagreement? No, not really. Okay. I, I, Perfect. I, I remember having a conversation just just by way of context. I remember having a conversation with my father about Mountain Meadows Massacre. And uh, this was when the movie September Dawn came out, that essentially said the Brigham Young had ordered the massacre. The movie came and went. Nobody paid any attention to it. Uh, and and I had read uh, Massacre at Mountain Meadows by Richard Turley, and I, I think he co-wrote it with somebody else, But which I think is a really wonderful book because it, it doesn't try to shy away from uh, Mormon culpability for the Mountain Meadows Massacre, although it does make it clear that it was something that happened locally. Brigham Young actually sent a letter saying, let the settlers pass, and it's almost like a movie. It arrives too late. The settlers are dead by the time it gets there. Uh, he, he said, He said, no, I don't think it's fair to lay the blame for the Mountain Meadows Massacre at Brigham Young's feet. He says, but where it is fair is to point out that Brigham Young felt absolutely no compunction about lying to the federal government. That the, the, the saints felt so aggrieved by the federal government and felt persecuted by the government, that they essentially, even if there wasn't a shooting war, there was this feeling of war that the world is trying to stop us, the world is represented by the federal government. And so the, the 
the leaders of the church from Brigham Young, I think, through Wilford Woodruff, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure when this would change. It may have changed after statehood. We're starting to change after statehood in 1890. I think that's when, when it begins to change, where all of a sudden we realize we ought to be good citizens. We're not at war with the federal government, and now Latter-day Saints are, are more American than most Americans. Uh, but but so, so I look at that in that context and say, yeah, Wilfred Woodruff issues the manifestos and tells the federal government, okay, we're not practicing polygamy anymore because you've been threatening to shut down our entire church and seize all of our assets, and we're not going to allow that to happen. So, no, okay, we're not practicing polygamy. And then he turns around and says, yes, we are, but we're going to do it in secret. We're going to do it in different countries. We're going to do it in ways that we can hide from the federal government. Uh, that, I think, is consistent with the mindset of 19th century church leaders. Uh, so so I, I, I would concede and even go further and say, yes, absolutely, that was the intent. And the church felt no responsibility and no accountability to the federal government and was willing to, to lie to the federal government because they felt they were at war with them. And maybe let's let's do this as kind of the last thing to cover but in this 1890 manifesto and even in the 1904 second manifesto a realization that we as a church have framed those two things as revelation like god said to wilford woodruff stop practicing polygamy and the reality is it's not quite that that it isn't at all right it is essentially... There is no revelation ending polygamy. Yeah, amen. And, and so essentially what you have is Wilfred Woodruff knows that he can't end this thing after all this emphasis inside the mainstream church without couching it in the words of that can be seen as revelation because that's, that's what's going to get the members of the church to uh, collectively... Again, we, we, we acknowledge there's these fragments they're sending off to do it. But institutionally, as a large institution... It it had to be it had to be seen by the general membership as it's it, we're done we're not doing this anymore, and so the 1890 manifesto had to be worded in a way that looks like it's revelation, and we as an institution have taught it that way from that day till now. Well, we taught it that way. It isn't worded that way. It's a very dry legal statement. Amen. You look at official, you look at official declaration number one, and you read it and you go, that's it. It's like it's like a court summons. I mean, it does not read like a revelation. And we've attached a number. I mean, the statement, for instance, that the prophet cannot lead you astray, is attached as sort of an ancillary explanation of official declaration number one, um, because official declaration number one does not read as a revelation at all. And so, you, you even now, you open your doctrine and covenants, and you read it, and it's all of the supplementary material that tries to sort of frame it in a, in a revelatory framework. But there, there, isn't, there wasn't a revelation. If there was, I think we would have seen it by now. Somebody would have recorded it. And this is the same thing with, with blacks and the priesthood, is that people point and say, that was a revelation. And I say, okay, well, where's the revelation? We have, we have revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants directing us to do all kinds of things. Where's the revelation that ends polygamy, and where's the revelation that denies the, the priesthood to people of African descent? There isn't one. Right. So, so you would acknowledge that the church, 
throughout its curriculum and in the way it's done things in its periodicals and the way it's formed its lessons has wanted members to see the 1890 manifesto as a revelation, but it wasn't correct. Okay. Awesome. Um, I want to point out something that's attached to this. I I don't want to get off too far and I'm worried that this is going to do that, but I want to know what your thoughts are. There's an 1886 revelation from John Taylor. Yeah, I think it's spurious. You think it's spurious? Yeah, I I, I, I don't put a lot of weight to that. Gotcha. Um, I want to remark just to the listener, I disagree with that. I think that even the apologists in the church see the revelation as uh, credible or at least leaning towards it being a credible document. It seems to be in John Taylor's handwriting. It was discovered by his son and it was shared at his son's disciplinary court. Um, and other apostles in that disciplinary court said they were aware of it. Uh, it. It just seems like it's never been canonized. And so I'm not, I don't want to debate you here on that. I'll, if you want to hold that perspective, that's fine. I would simply remark to the listener to go look well, at the, the, the debate around it. It seems like it is an actual... Well, by spurious, uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of different ways to interpret that. I mean, do I believe it's an abject forgery? I don't know. But the reason why I would say it's spurious is that if it, if this were a revelation to the Lord's prophet in terms of how to direct the church, uh, there is no reason that the Lord's prophet would not bring it before the church in order to be able to be sustained by common consent. So if if John Taylor wrote something down, and couched it in the language of Revelation, but didn't bring it before the main body of the church? Is this because he's speculating? Is this because, I mean, what is it? Uh, So so when when I say spurious, I I, I don't want to get into any kind of, I'm not equipped to be able to, to, um, to debate the provenance of the document and John Taylor's handwriting or anything else. What I'm debating is revelations that are binding on the church are brought before the church and sustained by common consent. And the 1886 revelation did not go through that process. And therefore, I I feel absolutely no reason to be bound by it. Perfect. And I'll agree with you there. We don't know why John Taylor held, if, again, if it's legitimate, and I think it is, why he held that privately and never presented it to the church collectively, we don't know. And because it wasn't presented collectively, it's not binding on the church. So I'll I'll go that far and agree. And I think that's a great place to end. Um, I want to say thank you again. I mean, I feel like the conversations are, we're going to say it every time, but I just think they're the, they're amazing. If I'm a listener and I'm just messing around in this data and I'm, I'm just struggling and not sure what to make sense of, these conversations, I think, are going to be a ton of fun for people. Well, and may I say that they, sure. they have changed my mind, at least on the Book of Abraham. I mean, I've gone back now and looked, and, and I want to revise what I wrote about the Book of Abraham. I, I, I found, since our last conversation, I found a conversation Robin Jensen had with Stephen Smoot, uh, who I know is not a big big uh, hero in, in uh, critic circles. But uh, Robin Jensen goes through and essentially outlines the catalyst theory and says there's really no other way to look at this. And Robin Jensen offered this kind of 
analogy of, he says, imagine if you've got a daughter who's diagnosed with an illness and you pray and the daughter is healed. And then you find out later that the diagnosis was wrong. Uh, does that, does that cast, does that make the healing any less miraculous? And his point is that Robin Jensen's position seems to be that Joseph Smith absolutely believed he was translating from the Joseph Smith papyri that we have, and he was mistaken. He was wrong. But the revelation he received in the process, that doesn't mean that that wasn't a revelation, that that is inaccurate. It just means that Joseph was wrong in believing that he was translating. And so, I mean, as I look at that, I go, that that that's where I land with regard to the book of Abraham. And that isn't where I landed prior to us having these conversations. Yeah. And we also had mentioned uh, there was an issue with Brian Haglid or Hoglid over there being two manuscripts uh, oh, yeah. simultaneously dictated. And just to say, I think we both agree now that that was a non-issue. That wasn't something... I, that was something I was throwing out as as wild speculation, not something that I yeah. was trying to defend McCulloch. Right, right, right. And so we had, a, you know, I had approached Brian and I had shared Brian's response with Jim that essentially that's a non-issue. It, it simply points to the fact that there were two dictated manuscripts during the translation process so that they always had a second manuscript in case something happened to the first one. Right. Okay. Perfect. Um, and, and I want to, I want to just point out, and I don't want to get off on this, but because you brought up the book of Abraham, simply to mention that I, I, again, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think Abraham one, 12 through 14 makes, if you're going to hold a catalyst theory, you have to come up with an explanation, which I think you've offered one, and I, I want to simply just say it here, and you can agree or disagree, and I don't, I've only got like three minutes left, which is that um, essentially, yes, Abraham says you're working with a image. Abraham says you're working with the text immediately following that image, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the papyri Joseph has uh, is the text and image that Abraham is speaking of. Well... No, when we went back and forth on this a little bit, um, I, I think this this gets back to, uh, and we haven't talked about this, I think, in, in our conversations. I think we've talked about this offline. Uh, the idea of a loose translation versus a tight translation. Uh, I, and I'm very much in a loose translation camp. And so if Joseph is referencing, uh, he's getting a revelation that references an image that it's Joseph who editorially says, oh, that's the image at the beginning of this of, of this page. And so he adds that in there. And so that's an editorial comment. So Joseph is, so it, while it's in the words of Abraham, it's actually Joseph inserting it as Abraham's words. Well, Joseph is the translator. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the word translation is a word that Joseph uses to s describe a whole bunch of different processes. But the way I understand it is that Joseph is receiving the revelation that allows him to understand what it was that Abraham had said, and it is Joseph's responsibility to clothe that revelation in language, that the text of the book of Abraham is not being dictated to Joseph uh, via facts, that it is not, you know, Joseph is not being given the word for word. He's given an understanding 
of what the concepts are, and it is his responsibility to clothe it in language, which gives him the opportunity to insert unwittingly uh, a mistaken editorial comment. That if, if Abraham is talking about an image, Joseph adds, well, that's the image at the beginning of this record. And he puts that in Abraham's language. But ultimately, I mean, in terms of the geography on the page as to where the image is, uh, it's not really an issue for the ancient document, but it's an issue in Joseph's rendering of the revelation he's receiving. Perfect. And with that, let's end, because I've got to open my store in one minute. So, uh, All right, sir. Appreciate you, and uh, we'll hit this back up here in a couple of days. All right. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.